New Thinking Allowed, conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be examining the legacy of the amazing James Randi and the American skeptical movement. My guest is Mitch Horowitz, author of more than a dozen books. Among his titles are Occult America, The Secret History of How Mysticism Shaped Our Nation, The Miracle Club, How Thoughts Become Reality, The Seeker's Guide to the Secret Teachings of All Ages, and One Simple Idea, How Positive Thinking Reshaped Modern Life. Mitch is based in New York City, and now I'll switch over to the internet interview. Welcome, Mitch. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you, Jeff. Good to be here. We're going to be talking about the amazing Randy. He's had a lengthy career. He recently passed away at the age of 92. And I guess it's fair to say that he's probably the single most prominent person in the American skeptical movement. Oh, without question. You know, in many respects, he really retooled the term skepticism as a term that got used in the post-Woodstock era to make reference to all kinds of psychical research, paranormal claims. Of course, the terms skeptic and skepticism were part of our language, but he really made these terms into pop catchphrases that got used uh, in the media in a particular way. He had a particular style of skepticism because he was a showman, an entertainer. He uh, traveled with uh, rock musicians performing uh, on stage. And I tend to think of him as more of a scoffer than a, a skeptic in any philosophical sense. Yes. And, you know, we're going to be speaking, I, I suspect, you know, over much of our time together, uh, very critically of Randy's career and for very good reason. Um, that said, uh, I recognize that the passing of a man means that people have lost a friend, have lost a spouse, have lost a, a family member. And I, I, I mourn the loss of anybody who feels a gap in their lives at the passing of an individual. All of us are connected, have our social networks, and there's a somber note whenever anyone leaves this, this world. Uh, that said, he had a public uh, career. He was a public figure, and we are here to speak about the implications of that career. And it was a career defined by what the sociologist Marcello Truzzi referred to as pseudo-skepticism, which is the appearance of skepticism, uh, but an actual stance that's contrary to skepticism, which is judgment absent investigation, uh, which is a kind of condemnatory uh prejudicial and repetitive stance that takes the place of actually evaluating and testing material in any kind of consistent way. Well, as a matter of fact, uh, from the point of view of the parapsychology community, uh, Randy seemed to be opposed to real investigations of the paranormal. He endeavored to shut down uh, ongoing research. Well, that's his legacy, you know, ultimately. I think that at the end of the day, we here in the United States have probably lost 
about a generation or so of research into uh, ESP, uh, extra physical exchange of communication, anomalous transfer of communication in ways that exceeds the commonly recognized senses. Uh, much of this research has been shut down or, or hounded off of college campuses or just some of the old guard have, have aged out of the field and funding sources and support hasn't been there to replace them. And I suppose, you know, we're speaking across a divide uh, when we talk about the parapsychological community and the professional skeptic or pseudo-skeptic community that is all but impossible uh, to bridge. And it's very unfortunate. Um, the position of the parapsychological community, uh, which is the position that I share, is that it's entirely possible to study questions of extra-physical mentality in a clinical setting. And this research is not only compelling, but in fact, uh, it has proved uh, repeatable. Uh, results have been uh, demonstrated that stand up under very uh, strictly juried conditions. Uh, and this research is extremely inexpensive. I mean, compared to the money that gets spent on a whole wide range of uh, psychological, pharmacological, social science-related experiments, I mean, the, the, the budget numbers are just absolutely minuscule. So there's no risk uh, to the perpetuation of the scientific method or the practice of integrity within academic or intellectual culture to pursuing this research. That's the position of the parapsychological community. That's the position that I hold myself. The position that's held by activist uh, skeptics, um, many of whom, like me, are not scientists, um, is one of absolute uh, derision of anything or any of the claims uh, that they would say I just made. Uh, their absolute conviction is that uh, not only is there no value in this research, uh, but that if you demonstrate statistical anomalies uh, in pursuit of the study of extra-physical mentality, that in itself is evidence not of some sort of anomalous transfer of information in a lab setting, but of pollution in the data itself. They use a result as an actual mark of corruption of the data. And it's impossible to talk around that. It would be like using a result um, when testing for some uh, pharmacological substance as an indication that it doesn't work. And it's really, um, it's, a, it's a chasm that I, I don't think is bridgeable in our generation, unfortunately. And I say that, I say that somberly. Uh, after I published uh, my article uh, criticizing Randy's career, for example, um, there were uh, many kinds of responses, um, some of which are quotable, some of which are not. But I did find that one of the milder responses, but also one of the more telling ones, was the constant uh, claim from activists, skeptics, or professional skeptics that none of this parapsychological uh, data proves repeatable. And um, it's almost as impossible to respond to that claim as it is to tell a hardcore Trump supporter uh, that these election results that were just certified are, are valid. You're, you're dealing with an emotional conviction that simply can't be 
addressed that can't be spoken to uh, you or I or any number of other people who you've hosted on on this program could provide and have provided any number of citations and reference points that demonstrate that uh, many of these experiments including JB Ryan's experiments back in the day have been replicated but um, they will simply continue to repeat the claim which I think they believe that, that these experiments haven't been replicated. So when you're dealing with a, a, a chasm in, 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 in just basic perception, uh, even down to that level, it's, it's difficult to communicate. Well, it's interesting that you brought up the uh, parallel with uh, our current political situation in which it appears people are divided into silos and the silos don't speak to each other. The irony to me is that the uh, official skeptical organization, I think it's now called the Committee for Scientific uh, Investigation or something like that. It used to be called PSYCOP, Committee for the Scientific Investigation of the Claims of the Paranormal, is an outgrowth of the American Humanist Association, which was founded by Corliss Lamont, a philosopher who, who was also, uh, a, a, a publicly a communist, and uh, oh, that's and, interesting. Uh, hmm. Yeah, so there's a very strong left wing connection with this uh, materialistic philosophy that d denies the paranormal out of hand because it shouldn't occur if if you're a materialist. I too have noticed that there is a um, a left wing or or if you want to put it this way, progressive political orientation among. Uh, lots of the folks who consider themselves uh, activist skeptics or professional skeptics. And it puts someone like me into a little bit of a strange position because um, I speak only for myself. Uh, that's my orientation as well. That's my point of view as well. Uh, there's no necessary cleaving of, of, a, of a political point of view. I'm not, I don't believe so. Uh, in terms of whether one is uh, in support of or opposed to the questioning begged by uh, parapsychology. And I have noticed that they lead front and center with that uh, frequently. Uh, and what's so ironic to me is that when I am in uh, exchanges with some of these folk, which is not too often because I, I don't find it very fruitful, um, I do feel like I am speaking with someone who deals strictly and and exclusively with pro-Trump MAGA-based uh, information on social media and is as absolutely certain uh, that the electoral results in Pennsylvania are fraudulent as they are that uh, a light is going to go on if you flick a switch across the living room. And there's absolutely no way of bridging it. And I have tried and failed. Um, to point out the irony of this uh, to uh, a couple of these folks, and they don't register it at all. And the thing that I'm struck by, and I suppose, well, what can I say? You know, I, I, I'm disappointed, but I hope I'm never not disappointed by it because I don't want to become desensitized. I'm disappointed that, look, you know, it's really an illusion that there's a difference between uh, style and substance. I mean, if, if somebody is capable of debating, considering, weighing, bringing authentic skepticism to bear on an issue, they're usually capable of demonstrating a, a certain 
uh, decoriousness of behavior, of communication, of exchange, and the absolute absence of that decoriousness uh, among the professional skeptics, uh, the the name calling, the calumny, um, the constant uh, resorting to uh, ad hominem remarks, and so on and so forth. Um, uh, the chorus, you know, the kind of hive mentality, pointing this out and, and the, the problematic nature of this uh, as a form of discourse falls on deaf ears when brought to their attention. And these are some of the ser- very same folks, and I am with them, who would line up to criticize these things uh, coming out of the White House, coming out of, you know, the, the, the Trump rallies and so on and so forth. And yet, when it comes to themselves, they neither see it nor understand the implications of it. If you have a serious position, you must be able to argue that position in a civil and decorous way. The inability to do that or the unwillingness to do that, it seems to me, must reflect back on the position itself. Well, certainly people who are in the parapsychology community know that the uh, strongest weapon that has been used against them and has prevented any number of people from getting promotions or getting research grants, everybody in parapsychology has their own horror story. Uh, the major weapon, it seems uh, that the professional skeptics and, and their armies of amateur skeptics use is, is what I would call the horse laugh. Tell me what that is. Well, it's sort of like hardy har har. You believe in that? <laughs> I see. Right, 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 right. It's interesting. You know, I have um, I've talked through these issues with friends and colleagues who have no dog in this fight, who are not interested in parapsychology, nor are they interested in eliminating parapsychology. Uh, these issues are secondary to them at best. And they would say to me, well, look, you know, can't you just sit down and assemble a committee, examine this, examine that? And, you know, isn't there a way of just uh, 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 agreeing on certain protocols? And, you know, I I wish I could respond in the affirmative, but there is no such way. And um, I want to ask you a question. This was something I had asked you earlier uh, before our interview when we first spoke last week. And what you said was valuable. And I think it's worth repeating here. The question I put to you is... Um, what is it that accounts for the intensity of emotional uh, violence that these people bring to this discussion? What is it that that creates this uh, inability to have any kind of uh, exchange about this subject matter, no matter how it's framed and... um, and why is there such a a, a wall of, um, of 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 absolute uh, closed and repeat loop uh, thinking from the uh, professional skeptic community? I do have a short answer to that question. I had an occasion when I was a student at Berkeley to. Uh, raise a question when Arthur C. Clarke spoke on campus, the great science fiction writer. This was in the 1970s. Uri Geller was all over the media. Uh, he had been researched at SRI International and an article had appeared in Science Magazine. And Arthur Clarke had been quoted in Time Magazine, poo-pooing the whole thing. 
uh, even though in his novels like Childhood's End, he writes more favorably about uh, paranormal abilities. So I raised my hand and I said, Mr. Clark, do you believe in ESP? And I thought his answer was very revealing. He said, no, I do not because I don't want anybody to read my mind. If you look up uh, some things about Arthur Clarke's biography, you'll know that he he lived in Ceylon and he had a penchant for uh, young boys that uh, he he could uh, take to bed. And it's understandable that a person in in that situation would not want anybody to read uh, their mind. But ultimately, it's pointing towards I would call it a Freudian subconscious dynamic that. Uh, we don't want to know what's in our own mind, according to Freud. And uh, so the idea that other people could know secrets that we're actually hiding from ourselves, it, it could uh, damage the uh, social coherence that we have if this were widely accepted. Uh, you know, in previous uh, eras, they put witches to the stake. So your sense is that there is something that feels violative of the human situation, at least based on how we understand it within a materialist paradigm, uh, by the, 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 the question of parapsychology. If there's extra physical intelligence, if mind is non-local in some way, that proves, you know, if you extrapolate from that, that proves very violating of the individual, at least to these folks. It violates the principles of privacy that we hold dear. It uh, would be very disruptive. And I think that there's a sort of a, a social homeostasis uh, that requires that uh, the insights, the knowledge of parapsychology can only kind of leak very slowly into the culture. If it ever gets too prominent, uh, these people who, who want to tap it down often say, you know, they're fighting the rising tide of superstition. They, they are afraid of, you know, something like Nazi Germany rising up again. Right. And I, I understand that, you know, it's so, it's funny because there are times and places where temperamentally I feel that I'm not altogether different from people within the skeptical community. I have my own fears. I'm not, I'm not without my own concerns about which direction, you know, society is going to go in, about which direction the global neighborhood is going to go in. There are things that people say that trigger my fight or flight response. Uh, I could perhaps be having a conversation with somebody and they say something and I think, oh, that guy believes that. And, and I start to feel threatened. And I think it's human nature. And we all experience it, you know, to a very great extent. We talk about our political positions, our economic positions, our perspectives on psychology and relationships. You know, the truth is, at the end of the day, most of us want a world in which we feel safe. And to a very great extent, that that motivates most of what we call politics. And that's why politics gets so emotional so quickly. You know, you, you know we all want a world in which we feel safe. And I understand that, and I am not immune to that. I just wish I could persuade a couple of these folks, and I would settle for just a couple, that the safety that you want 
and the orderliness that you crave in life, which could be disrupted any time by anything. None of us can plan for anything. You know, I assume I know what I'm doing tonight at six o'clock, but I have no idea, you know. Regardless, you know, that safety that you want in life, there is nothing about the question of studying non-local intelligence, of studying the existence of extra physicality, which so many of our sciences uh, make a necessity in any case, in any case. There is no reason why addressing that question directly versus indirectly is going to be undermining of the order that we live in. And I understand the way things get crunched up and bunched up in the media. I know that they're afraid that there's going to be something coming out in the news tomorrow that says Duke University professor or Princeton University professor or Caltech professor says ESP real. I, I, I really do. I understand that. I understand that. But the fact is, you know, none of these kind of crunched down ways of talking about things are going to go away. And we, we, we make it more so when we try to demolish and disassemble questions. We make it more so when we endeavor not to prevail in a debate, if that's what you want, but to actually eliminate the debate. And that's the problem I have with the professional skeptic community. They don't want to have a debate and win. They don't want there to be any debate. And that, I think, is real anti-intellectualism. Uh, I guess this is all in service of saying that Temperamentally, I'm not so different from them in that I want there to be a safe and orderly world. I'd be, I'd be lying, you know, if I said otherwise. My vision of a safe and orderly world might be very, very different from the vision held by, you know, somebody who lives 6,000 miles from where I'm seated on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And I get that. I understand that. But our ability to function as a human community is not rendered more sturdy by absolutely shutting down a debate that in itself does not demean any individual or community, does not devalue or dehumanize anyone, all of which I understand being on guard about. But that's not the problem uh, within parapsychology. Uh, the problem is in finding interlocutors with whom we can productively uh, exchange. And that's what's missing. Now, there have been, to be fair to Randy, moments when he has had uh, give and take with people in the parapsychology community. I've known the man since the mid-1970s, and uh, uh, in fact, I have a book from him, inscribed by him to me, and it, it says, we are both in search of the truth, elusive bitch that she is. <laughs> you know, almost a semblance of camaraderie uh, there. Uh, well, you know, what we need to talk about is his million-dollar challenge, because I hear uh, frequently from viewers who say, if parapsychology is real, how come none of you have ever managed to win the million dollars? I got that from a producer the other day, and, you know, you probably know more about the million dollar conference than I do. You know, I'm, I'm aware of it being a annual, uh, charade that no real serious person would venture anywhere near, at least not to my knowledge. There may be some exception to that. Uh, I do know that I had colleagues who attempted to seriously interview, uh, Randy about it. It became clear that there was no committee. There was no nothing. You know, it was just a, it was just a showboat piece, but 
You may have insight on it that I don't. You know, the truth is there are a number of very carefully written articles about it. And what I'm going to do is put links to those articles in the description of, of this interview. So any of our viewers who want to dig into why virtually everybody in the parapsychology community uh, thinks of it as a joke or, or a publicity stunt, actually, uh, and not a a serious uh, scientific endeavor, uh, they can look at those articles. I can say, from my point of view, it's very ironic. I uh, consider Randy to be at least in part responsible for the fact that uh, I am able to produce this uh, video series and have been uh, doing it now for the last five years without taking a nickel back. And uh, to put it bluntly, Randy made me a millionaire inadvertently. You you won the million dollar challenge, <laughs> albeit not in the way that was expected. And I, I want to ask you, since you told me this story privately, I'd like to ask you to uh, speak about it now so your viewers know. Uh, when I got my doctoral degree in parapsychology in 1980, there was a concerted effort by the skeptics, including Randy, to have the university withdraw the diploma after it had already been awarded. And that followed a very concerted effort by one of my professors, a statistician who considered himself a hatchet man to do everything he could to sabotage my uh, diploma. So that's my horror story. It's uh, maybe a little bit worse than everybody else in the field of parapsychology who has one. In, in my case, this statistician kept accusing me of total, absolute, irredeemable incompetence uh, and never felt the need to explain why. And this went on for years, actually. I finally complained to the dean of the graduate division who said, okay, next time if he says that your work is incompetent, he has to provide a reason. If he won't, I'll remove him from your committee which is exactly what happened. He got removed. I, uh, my dissertation was approved by five faculty members at Berkeley, uh, and I received a diploma. At that point, this professor took all of the letters that he had sent originally claiming that I was totally incompetent, and he sent them to Randy. And Randy went and delivered them to a reporter at Psychology Today magazine in New York City uh, in a brown paper bag anonymously. And Psychology Today ran a story basically saying Mishlove, is, if he got, he probably didn't get his degree in parapsychology, but if he did get it, he didn't deserve it. And uh, I sued. Uh, for libel and also for invasion of privacy because my university records uh, had been illegally released. There's a law against that. And um, after six years of uh, legal, legal wrangling, I got a favorable settlement in 1986 that enabled me to make a down payment on a house in California. And uh, that's why today I am uh, sitting on over a million dollars in real estate equity. So uh, Randy, Randy was re responsible, at least in part, for that. He's he is the one who uh, transmitted uh, that false and illegal information to a uh, publication. Well, you yeah. won the million dollar challenge. Um, 
And what you're saying uh, also typifies the crisis of ethics that characterized a good deal of Randy's career and that has uh, colored or kind of seeped into the groundwater, I would say, of the professional skeptic community to a great extent. There are certainly exceptions. There are certainly exceptions. But I say that because I do uh, see that the uh, the style and the manner of debate and the the summoning, the dog whistling of helpers, uh, legally or not, ethically or not, um, bravely or not, uh, is a very common feature. Uh, no skeptic ever are, fights his own battles is, is, is a lesson that I learned in the wake of my article about Randy. You know, they're always copying and tagging one another so that somebody else can come along and, you know, have their back just in case this guy gets in a good shot or something. And um, they're very, there's very much a kind of a hive uh, mentality um, and an and expectation that, uh, you know, if you blow the whistle, somebody else is going to come, you know, running to help you. And again, I question why any of it is, is necessary. Uh, public safety is not at risk. Public health is not at risk. A reputation, by and large, is not uh, at risk. Uh, there's no objectification of other groups, of other individuals. All of those are good reasons to be alarmed about something. But none of those reasons can be found within uh, parapsychology, other than just by a willful projection onto the field. Uh, so there we are. You know, uh, we uh, they've won. Uh, congratulations to all you skeptics who are watching. Um, you know, uh, 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 You've, you've succeeded. Uh, you know, ESP research is absent from most campuses. I've seen the best minds of my generation driven mad by filling out grant proposals. You know, I mean, most folks who are into parapsychology are forced to spend a lot of time filling out grants proposals and seek private funding and so on, even though, you know, the budget numbers are, are, are really quite small. And um, you've won. So the question is, what next? You know, I mean... Uh, uh, the question itself of, of uh, extra locality of mind is indestructible. That question is not going to go away any more than questions of, you know, um, geo or heliocentricity would go away. You know, so the question is indestructible. The apparatus uh, by which to research the question has taken a hit. And uh, I suppose we're just going to watch and see what happens for the remainder of our generation. William James, who is one of my uh, models, both as a psychologist and a philosopher, said, we can't expect progress in this field decade by decade the way other disciplines uh, evolve. He said, it's because the issues are too deep at a metaphysical level. We instead have to measure progress by the century and by the half century. Uh, now we can look back. It's been a half century since I got into the field. And yeah, you can see there, there's been very slow and incremental progress. I I once heard uh, somebody say if, with regard to feminism, if women keep making progress at the current rate by another 1500 years, they'll have full equality. And I think the situation with parapsychology is, is maybe on that time scale. Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting question. And, and, and that's probably true. And the fact is, there have been matters of progress in areas of human dignity that ha are measurable on the scale of millennia or near millennia. I mean, that's no joke. Um, there are things that went on for centuries and centuries that would be deemed unacceptable today, but 
by today, I mean the last 90 or 100 years, you know. So uh, I think you're right. I think the long view has to be taken. And I also think that, you know, I resist um, whenever journalists ask me questions about, you know, is there an occult revival going on? You know, why is there so much interest in this stuff now? And the truth is, uh, I, I resist and I, I push back against these kind of ready-made news hooks about paradigm shifts or revivals in the metaphysical, you know, this stuff, you know, it's always been popular. Yes. Maybe there's indications that during periods of war and economic crisis, there are spikes of interest in the extra physical, but what generation hasn't been, uh, hasn't had to wrestle with questions of, of war or economic crisis or, or pandemic. I mean, look at the world war one generation and what it went through. So I resist this idea that we are somehow on some sort of a precipice. I mean, if you grew up during the Second and First World Wars, you would have very good reason to feel, perhaps better reason to feel, that you were uh, uh, balanced on a precipice than, than we are. At the same time, I also I am recognizing of the advances that have been made very recently uh, in the study of UFO phenomena. Uh, mm-hmm. The Department of Defense is now anew, dedicating money, time, budgets, personnel to researching UFOs. Uh, the DOD uh, this year officially released cockpit videos that had been leaked earlier, but that now it, it gave its full approbation to and said, yes, you know, the cat is out of the bag. And one can debate the timing, the motive, this, that, the other thing. But the fact is this stuff is out there. And um, the question of, of it would be intellectually embarrassing to say, oh, you know, study of UFOs, little green men, swamp gas, the bunch of nonsense. You know, the, the question is out there. The question is alive. The question is mainstream. And uh, there are other things that would have been unthinkable when I was growing up, such as talking about some primeval or microbial form of life on Mars or Venus or there being water on the sunlit side of the moon. You know, imagine what Psychology Today magazine would have done if you had said that in 1980. You know, it would have been preposterous. And now this stuff is mainstream. So for the first time in my career, at least, I'm willing to entertain the question, yeah, there's a shift going on. Something is changing and other things are going to get brought in the wake. You know, we're, everything's interconnected. You know, see, so you alter one element and other things are going to get altered. So I, I, I do think that we should be watching very, very carefully right now. There has been, I think, a landmark development in parapsychology that occurred two years ago in August of 2018. The American Psychologist, which is the flagship journal of the American Psychological Association, published an article by Etzel Cardenia, who uh, was the editor of the Journal of Parapsychology, and it summarized the history of research, meta-analyses covering, I think, about 1,400 parapsychology experiments, pointing out that uh, they were overwhelmingly significant statistically, that uh, the methodologies have been continually improving over the decades, and that uh, there's a lot of serious theoretical work going on in quantum physics uh, and other areas that suggest that this data is not inconsistent with the uh, most advanced knowledge of how the physical universe works. It's fascinating. And I wonder, you know, um, if there is any productive way of addressing or any need to address 
the rote claim that you'll hear from the professional skeptic community that none of this data has been replicated, which I actually believe they do believe because people assert that with such sincerity that I, I recognize their sincerity. And yet, you know, it's, it's, it's in effect, you know, metaf- it's saying down is up, up is down, north is south, um, wet is dry. You know, I, I realize it's a position that's stated with conviction. And um, I don't know whether it can be responded to or, frankly, whether it needs to be responded to. Well, let me just say this. Uh, th- that particular article that I just referred to uh, is, is significant. The American Psychological Association has been very resistant over the years to parapsychology. Psychologists are among the most threatened of all disciplines uh, by parapsychology because we're so close and because our data threatens the validity of their data. Uh, nevertheless, uh, if any viewer holds that view, and I hear it a lot from people, they usually use the phrase, there isn't a shred of evidence. Yes, yes, shred uh, is a very popular if, word, yes. <laughs> yeah. If if they write to me, because I can't post the article publicly, uh, if you have a university library account, you can access it or you can buy it for $30. But if people send me a, a private email uh, to friends at newthinkingaloud.com, if they want to see that article, I will send it to them individually. The resistance that the field meets with, it may be its ultimate redemption, you know, being forced to struggle in conditions of severe pushback can be extremely difficult. Uh, it can be extremely wearying, but it, it does, it compels refinement. It compels refinement. And, um, what you were describing earlier, what was it? The, the horse laugh? Um, is that yeah. The, yeah. <laughs> now I've been around the parapsychological community, uh, not a clinician, not a scientist, uh, I care very deeply about some of these questions. I write as a seeker. I write as a historian. Uh, I describe myself as a believing historian, which is actually true of most historians of religion. Uh, I'm speaking about a different field right now, but most, um, most of our histories of religious movements, whether traditional or new religious movements, are written actually by people who emerge from those congregations. It's no contradiction to critical thinking, but... Um, I try to be transparent, you know, and so I freely refer to myself as a, a believing historian to connote that I participate in some of the movements that I write about. But I have noticed um, that the level of discourse, by and large, within the uh, professional or academic or scholarly parapsychological community uh, is high, is high. And people really care about getting it right. They're deeply, deeply dedicated. And I have witnessed debates between parapsychologists who have different points of view as to what's going on. And the rigor of these debates, as well as the respect, is just considerable, just considerable. So the the difficulties to which the field has been subjected are also refining. And that may be necessary too. I sort of uh, think of it in terms of uh, the various social liberation movements. Uh, we had, uh, of course, race 
relations and, and the civil rights movement. And then we've had the feminist movement and, and the gay liberation movement. And it seems to me that at some point, I don't know exactly when, there will be a, a liberation of the psyche, a, a movement for total liberation of the human psyche, but we're not there yet. We're not there yet. And, uh, there are, of course, so many questions. Um, I've made an effort in my own way to bring those questions into the field of popular metaphysics, which I spend a lot of time working in. I care very, very deeply about what William James referred to as the religion of healthy mindedness. I care very, very mm -hmm. deeply about questions of mind causation, and I'm absolutely persuaded that there's something there, but that something can be elusive and it can be frustrating and because something occurs does not mean that it's going to repeat in the same way or perhaps ever again and because it is not repeatable ever again does not mean that it did not occur and uh, this too is an area uh, the term the famous term confirmation bias is is as popular as shred um, within the <laughs> phrase book of the of the of the skeptic movement and um, what's always funny to me is that confirmation bias which is essentially a way of talking about prejudice um is a critique that the wielder of that term never reflects back on him or herself it cuts both ways it, it cuts both ways it cuts both ways and so you know if uh something occurred but it's not uh, repeatable uh, or maybe it is repeatable, but it, it, it's repeatable in, in, in ways that are not quite like dentistry. You know, it doesn't just come to order that way. It puts the individual in front of a, a, a tough question and it requires a great deal of patience. And this is a virtue that, you know, has never been really a, a, a strong, um, facet of our culture. But, um, uh, the idea of having patience in the face of, uh, damned questions, you know, to paraphrase Charles Fort, is very, very difficult, is very, very difficult. And so I ask people to experiment with different possibilities, different ways of living, different outlooks. Uh, when one experiments, my ethic is you, you take the consequences on yourself. Um, and uh, the results can be very uneven. And you have to keep going and you have to keep going with a certain degree of patience and resiliency and maturity. I feel that the popular literature in metaphysics going back to the late 19th century up through our own time, personally speaking, I feel that it has something to offer. I think it gets individuals thinking about different ways and possibilities of using their minds. The results in my experience are never ruinous. People are not going out blowing ruinous sums of money or taking their hands off the plow of necessity. In fact, one of the things I've always loved about spiritual culture in America, generally speaking, is that there's been a lot of experimentation and none of it uh, necessarily uh, contributes to or disrupts uh, the flow of necessity, which is also part of life. There's nothing ruinous that have emerged uh, on any um, substantial level from any of these experiments. And I'm very encouraged by the popular metaphysics that exists in our country. And there's, of course, there's excess, there's sensationalism, there's aesthetics or style that people may not like. And I, I get all that. And, and, and in my own work, I, I try to, um, I try, uh, to improve the thought quality 
that is employed within the world of popular metaphysics. And I'm heartened by that effort. I'm heartened by that effort. I hear from a lot of people who love uh, popular metaphysical expressions, call it what you like, you know, I call it mind causation. You know, other people could say law of attraction, not a phrase I like, manifest, not a phrase I like, positive thinking, that's okay with me. Um, you know, call it what you will. You know, that, that field, I believe, has something to offer, but it has, since James's death in 1910, it has grown by leaps and bounds in, t- in terms of popularity, but not intellectually. And I'm trying, as best I'm capable, of helping it to grow intellectually. And I'm seeing signs of life there. I'm seeing a lot of people who profess to be to be waiting for that. So I'm heartened in that regard. Well, Mitch Horowitz, I'm looking forward to having more conversations with you about uh, the New Thought Movement, about Neville Goddard, about Manley Hall, and uh, many of the other uh, people that you have written about and studied very intensely. I uh, uh, think it's very distinctly American. It's related to uh, American transcendentalism. It's it's really part of the heart and soul of this nation. So, uh Thank you so much for being with me today, and uh, I certainly uh, want to have you back uh, often on New Thinking Aloud. Pleasure. Be very happy to. I enjoyed it very much. And for those of you watching, thank you for being with us.